Okay. Where we're at is this. We have reached the point in our study of the book of Isaiah where we have gone through the first 27 chapters. We are, quite honestly, almost halfway through the book. These next chapters that we're going to be looking at, verse chapters 28 through 35, are specifically about one event in the life or in the, in the history of the nation of Judah. And specifically, chapters 28 through 35 are targeting and talking to, these, these prophetic words are talking to one specific king. Now, I'm speaking slowly because we have children passing out the, the notes that you have to be looking at for me to make sense. So guys, Corbin, can you come on over on this side and give some to these folks too, please? Thank you. If you will look on your sheet, you will see, the one that the kids are passing out, you will see two sides to the sheet. Okay? One side is the chart of the kingdom period from 1010 to 586 BC. The other side is called the Isaiah timeline. Either one of them will work. I will be referring to the Isaiah timeline. I know it's small. I'm sorry, it's the best I can offer you. But uh, bring your magnifying glasses in the future. But we are talking about King Hezekiah during these next seven chapters or eight chapters. We're going to be looking at the, the, the kingdom that was, uh, that was ruled over by King Hezekiah of Judah. Now, if you look at the Isaiah timeline, you will see across about the center of the page a gray band from the year 740 B.C. to around 681 B.C. And you'll see a, a marking there that says Isaiah, the time of the writing. So scholars have dated the book of Isaiah to this range of time. And if you look at the orange, or the, the very first, yours is in black and white, so if you look at the very first band, you'll see it says Southern Kingdom, the first vertical band. Southern Kingdom, Judah continues to rebel, and you'll see in that, in that the, the, the vertical band overlaps with the timeline of Isaiah's writing, starting with King Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. So Hezekiah was the son of King Ahaz. Hezekiah is identified in the scriptures as being a good king of Judah. His father Ahaz was listed as not such a good king of Judah. Ahaz didn't honor God. Ahaz did a lot of things wrong. God condemned Ahaz through the scriptures, through the prophets. Um, Joel, I believe it was Joel, Micah, Amos, and Isaiah are all profiting, prophesying during the time of uh, Ahaz's rule. And all of them call him down. And what he's being called down for is A, he worships other gods, but also he makes alliances and he tries to, um, tries to trust in his alliances with other nations as opposed to trusting in God. That's one of the things that Ahaz is called down for. 
Now Hezekiah, if you look at his story in the scriptures, he is identified as a good king, one of the good guys, one of the ones that does reforms and tries to bring the nation of Israel back to a right relationship with God. However, Hezekiah did have faults, and Hezekiah did do some things wrong during his reign. And these chapters in Isaiah, chapters 28 through 35, are God speaking through his prophet to King Hezekiah saying, Hey! Smart up, guy. You're starting to go the wrong pathway. And we're going to look over these next few weeks at this storyline. Now, keeping your finger at Isaiah chapter 28, turn a couple pages over to Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses and trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. That one verse is pretty much central, literally, physically, in this arrangement of chapters 28 through 35, but it's also key or central to what this whole message is over these number of chapters. Isaiah is speaking to King Hezekiah saying, do not make an alliance with the Pharaoh. Do not put your trust in his ability to defend you, to protect you, because it is going to fail. Put your trust in God. Now, We know from history that that's exactly what Hezekiah ended up doing. And the end result was that Hezekiah brought down problems for the nation of Judah. And uh, it ended up that ultimately the nation of Judah got overrun by, it was eventually, it it was first Assyria, and then eventually it was Babylon, and then ultimately they were carried off into the exile because Hezekiah and other kings did things that were not appropriate. But this section is this... There's this sense of it's impending. You're about to make a really bad decision. And, the, and God, through his prophet, is saying, Hey, <laughs> wake up. You need to not go there. Please, I need you to recognize what's happening here. And I, unfortunately, Hezekiah didn't. So now, that's, that's the gist of what the next few weeks are going to be. Now, let's look specifically at chapter 28. We're going to look at some of the components of it first. And then at the end, I'm going to just do a so what. Okay? Why did I even want to look at this this week for you or for me or for anybody? So let's read through chapter 28. There are 29 verses. We're not going to read through all of it sequentially, but we're going to, I mean, we are going to read through it sequentially, but we're going to read a few verses and stop. And then read a few verses and stop rather than reading through all of it and then coming back and rehashing it. So we're going to read through the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 28. Woe to that wreath, I'm reading out of the NIV by the way, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour, he will throw it forcefully to the ground, that wreath. The pride of Ephraim's drunkards will be trampled underfoot. 
that fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley will be like a fig ripe before harvest. As soon as someone sees it and takes it in his hand, he swallows it. Let's go ahead and read chapter, I mean, verses 5 and 6 also. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown to a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Now, there's some imagery going on here that made perfect sense in Isaiah's and Hezekiah's time, but for us who don't have that culture and that landmark, those landmarks around us, we're going, what? What are they talking about here? Well, scholars have identified and understand that what Isaiah is saying when he talks about this wreath, and some of your translations may say crown. Did anybody's translations talk about a crown? Okay. The, the, the city of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, okay, Hezekiah is the king of, of Judah, and his capital is Jerusalem. At the same time, there's the northern kingdom, and the kingdom's capital was Samaria. And Samaria was up on a hill overlooking a valley. And scholars, scholars have identified, and, have, and, and have, 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 through art, not archaeological study, but have identified through whatever writings that they've come across, that the city walls of Samaria looked like a crown sitting up on this head or the, the crest of this hill that overlooked the valley. So there's this imagery that Isaiah is kind of playing off of, okay? He's saying, oh, Samaria, you head of the valley, you beautiful crown. But then he talks about drunkards wearing wreaths, okay? Because he's calling out the leaders of northern Israel, saying, you're walking around drunk with your little party hat on, going, yeah, this is great. This is great. And so here's this imagery of Samaria, the crown jewel of the northern kingdom, but it's being destroyed by these people who are in leadership and not taking responsibility for what their leadership should be. And they're out partying and getting drunk all the time. And, and they literally were known for that. And it literally says, what is it, verse 5, verse 4, where is it? Oh, tr verse 3. The wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, is going to get trampled underfoot. Okay? So there's this understanding of this, this speaking of this crowning, the leadership, the beauty of Samaria that's now going to get destroyed and trampled underfoot. Verse 4 talks about, talks about the fading flower, their glory going away. And then it talks about this idea of a fig that's ripe before harvest. Well, fig trees actually produce three different crops. They produce an early crop, then they produce a regular crop that's harvested around August or September, and then they actually produce a winter crop that's harvested, if it's a gentle winter, in the early part of spring. So what he's talking about here is this fig that ripes, ripens before harvest. He's talking about those figs that start early. And those are ones that you're lucky if you find them. And if you find them, he said here, it's the idea that they just get plucked and eaten without even any thought. And that same swiftness and that same sense of it's going to be, it's ripe and beautiful and fruitful and all of a sudden it's gone. That's what's going to be happening to you, Ephraim. That's what God is saying in these first five verses or four verses 
of the book of Isaiah chapter 28. So the focus is not on Hezekiah, but the focus is on the northern kingdom. Because their leaders are corrupt, because their leaders are not paying attention. And then Isaiah switches in verses 5 and 6 and he's talking about how God, the Almighty, then when it says Lord Almighty, that's Jehovah Sabaoth, God of all of heaven's armies, all of heaven's resources, the God of gods, if you will. Jehovah Sabaoth will be the glorious crown, the beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. In other words, you've got leaders who are going the wrong way and falling apart, and you're going to suffer destruction quickly. But there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a remnant who hold on to the Lord God, Jehovah, who will be their crown, who will be their strength, who will provide for them, even in the hard times. Now, verses 7 and following, the vision changes. It's no longer talking to the northern kingdom but now he's talking to the leadership of Judah. Those who are in the capital at Jerusalem. And he says in verse 7. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. There's not a spot without filth. Who is it? Okay, and that, so this, let's stop there. These two verses, Isaiah is saying, he's calling out the leaders. Who are the leaders? The priests in the temple and the king. And he's saying, you people are getting so drunk on your wine and you're not paying attention, you're not being careful. You're not keeping yourselves level and plumb, if you will, with who you should be and what you're supposed to be doing. And it's literally as if you vomited all over the tables and you're still trying to eat. And these are the words of God being spoken through the prophet to the people who are in leadership over the nation. And verse 9 then says, this is the response of the teachers, of the leaders, of the priests, who are going, who is, he, who is it he's trying to teach? To whom is he explaining this message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? They're saying, who do you think you are, Isaiah? We're the leaders of this nation. We're the priests. Who do you think you are? And then they say, verse 10, For it is do, 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 and do, rule and rule, rule and rule, a little here, a little there. And scholars have absolutely no understanding or, or, or uh, recognition of what this is actually supposed to be saying. Um, this do and do, do and do, rule and rule, rule and rule, a little here, a little there, is a, an exact translation of those words in Hebrew. But what scholars are actually think is happening is that the scholars think that what the drunk leaders of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, are saying is. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he's talking to? It's da 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 da. In other words, they're just speaking babbling words. In other words, imagine it in our vernacular. Somebody comes up to you and says something to you in a word of warning, and you're like, "Yeah, yada 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 yada." Please shut up. 
Just knock it off. You're doing this. I want you to do this. That's exactly what they're saying here. Verses 9 and 10, and even goes into 13. And it's this whole idea, <coughs> excuse me, um, that they're just not listening. They refuse to hear the message that Isaiah is speaking to them. Very, chapter 11, very, verse 11, excuse me. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people. To whom he said, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. This is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become. Okay. So what he's saying here. What Isaiah is saying. God has been saying to you. Leaders of Jerusalem. Leaders of the people of Judah. I am your source. I am your strength. Follow me. Do what I tell you. Put your trust in me. Put your hope in me. And all you're doing is looking everywhere but. And then when I try to come to you, you just go, yeah, who does he think he is? Blah, 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 And God said, you think blah, 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 blah. Well, let me prove to you, blah, 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 blah is going to happen. But it ain't going to happen from my prophet anymore. It's going to come from your enemies. And their babbling is going to be their foreign tongue being spoken in your streets and in your own bedrooms because they're going to take your houses from you. That's what's going to be happening. Blah, 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 people. That's literally what's being done here in this argument or these words that are being spoken by the prophet over the leadership. And then, verse 14, it says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. Calling someone a scoffer is one of the worst insults you can do when they're supposed to be leaders. You who rule this people in Jerusalem... You boast, well, we've entered into a covenant with death, with the grave, and we've made an agreement. But an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we've made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. And what they're talking, what Isaiah is talking about this is he's saying, you think because you are making an alliance with the Pharaoh of Egypt that his strength is going to cover you and protect you and keep you safe from the Assyrians? You need to understand how foolish that is. You need to understand. You think you're avoiding death. You are inviting death into your house. Chapter verse, I mean chapter 28 verse 16 then says, So this is what Jehovah Sabaoth says. I lay a stone in Zion. A tested stone. A precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away morning after morning by day and night. It will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. Moving on. Verse 20. This seems like a really weird place for this verse. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. What? 
Scholars believe that this was a colloquial expression used in Israel, and it made perfect sense to the, to the hearers. The best that scholars can come up with in the interpretation of this is, you think you've got yourself a place of rest, a place of refuge, but you're going to climb in and find out that your feet hang over the edge. And you're going to find out that that warm, comforting blanket that you thought you would keep yourself protected against the cold isn't even big enough to wrap around your body, let alone keep, provide any warmth. So what you've placed your hope in, what you've placed your trust in, what you've invested in is, going to be prov is proving to come up short. That's what scholars think they understand this verse to be. Verse 20, uh, excuse me, 21 and 22. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your marking, excuse me, your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. And what this is talking about, in Mount Perizim, there's a history in the King David's time where David was routing his enemies and God came to his rescue at Mount Perizim. And then in Gibeon, there is a, another time where it says that God himself rained hailstones on the enemy and God's hail killed more than the nation of Israel killed during the battle. So what Isaiah is saying to the people of the leaders of, of Jerusalem is the Lord is going to rise up and it would be wise for you to have him pour out his power and his strength on your enemies instead of doing it on you. Capiche? Do you understand? He has the power. He has the strength. He has the resources. And he will make it happen. If you will submit yourself to him. But if you don't, something bad's coming, folks. And you need to recognize it. And then finally, verses 23 through 29, which we're not going to take time this morning to read, is another parable and the scholars say that the basic understanding with this is that it might have been a poem that used to be spoken back then. It might be something that Isaiah himself made up. Nobody knows for sure. But what this is talking about is a farmer uses different implements and different techniques when he's planting different crops. And when he wants to do harvests, he uses different implements and different techniques when he wants to bring about a harvest. And so God... The word that the scholars think that Isaiah was saying here was, God doesn't necessarily work the same way all the time. And you need to just understand that God has a purpose and a plan and a reason for what he does, when he does, how he does it, and you need to just trust him. So, I'm telling you, Jerusalemites, leaders of my people, King Hezekiah, submit yourself to God. Put yourself back under his authority and rule. Do not follow the path of your brothers to the north. Make an alliance with Pharaoh. Keep your hope and your trust in God alone. That's the gist of 28. But before we close up, I want to go back to verse 16. And the thing that's interesting is if you look at Hebrew literature, just the way things are structured, there's a lot of times there's what's called chiastic structure. And I'm not saying that chapter 28 is a chiasm, but chiastic structure means look at the very center 
Because that's the most important part of the whole message. And as I was studying that this week, I looked at this and I went, hmm, there's 29 verses, 29 verses, that's almost 30, which means about 15, 15 and a half or so would be the center, 14 and a half to 15. What's, what's in the very center of this? And I looked at verse 14, 15, and 16, and 17, which is about the center of this chapter. And it says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule the people in Jerusalem. You boast, we've entered into a covenant with death, with the grave. We have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it can't touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and false our, our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, that lie, the wa and water will overflow your hiding place. And if you go to the very center, almost, it's almost exactly center, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. And scholars know because it says right in the New Testament that this verse is talking about the Messiah, Jesus. We read at the very beginning of the service, 2 Peter chapter 2, talking about the stone the cornerstone, the capstone. I shared with the kids the idea of what it means to align your life with Jesus to make sure that you're living a life that's pleasing to God. I asked God why this chapter. I mean, honestly, I thought, well, we could just kind of do all seven chapters together and just do this block today, because quite honestly, Pastor Bob wants to move off of Isaiah and go on to something else. It's been a year almost. Not really. But it's just, you know, after a while you're kind of like, okay, let's just follow the discipline, because I don't want to do this anymore. But I know this is what God wants, and so we're going to do it. So I'm, I, I prayed about it. I was like, Lord, can I just kind of do this big block, and we could skip on to 40 with some really cool stuff? And the Lord said, no, you're going to do it chapter by chapter for a while until I tell you differently. Okay. So why chapter 28, God? What's important for me to hear this week? What's important for my people to hear this week? Tell them about the cornerstone. Tell them about that tested stone that is going to be the foundation for their life. That's going to keep them right where they need to be. Tell them to keep their eyes focused on me. Okay, well that's all well and good. That's an old, old story, God. Victory in Jesus kind of stuff. What's the real message? Well, it is the message, Bob. But if you have to have a real message, the real message is ask them who their Egypt is. I heard that very distinctly this morning as I was praying in my quiet time. Um, I said, God, what is it that you want me to say? Because this has been in my heart for a couple days. This whole cornerstone foundation, get your heart lined up, blah, blah, blah. But there was a sense that that wasn't the whole thing. And I got up this morning not feeling settled, that I felt like I still needed to study some more. And so I went to my office and I started reading a little bit more. And I was just like, what do you want? What is the, what is the thing? And God said, just ask him. What is the Egypt in your life? Y'all named Jesus so you wouldn't be here. I mean, 
if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then you need to. That's number one. Because if you don't have your life right with God, <clears throat> then you can't hope to have the peace. You can't hope to have the safety. We talked about Jehovah Jireh, my provider. We talked about all of the good stuff of having a relationship this morning. So first of all, you have to have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Your sins have to be confessed. You have to have that solid foundation. But I trust that most, if not all of us sitting in this room, already have passed that part of our relationship. We are already in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But what are you really trusting in? When the props get pulled out, do you go into a blind panic? Or do you find peace? When what you expected would happen doesn't. And something that's almost opposite to what you expected would happen. Do you, does your world fall apart? Are you at rest? Saying, God's got this. I'm, I'm, I'm just his servant. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because see, to the level of anxiety that you feel when things don't go the way you think they should go, that's the level of distrust you still have in your heart towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if your life was perfectly level and perfectly plumb, using Jesus as the cornerstone, you shouldn't have anxieties and fears. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have worry. I mean, you don't have things that challenge you. That doesn't mean you don't have problems. Jesus himself had problems. But I don't ever remember seeing Jesus running in a blind panic anywhere in the scriptures. I see him in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, God, this is not what I would want to have happen. And if there's any way it can happen differently from this, let's do that, okay, Father? But ultimately, your will, your will. I can understand that as a Christ-like attribute of my life. I don't have to like everything that's happening, and I can challenge and say, God, is there any way this could change? But for me to walk around going, oh my goodness, what in the world? How am I going to get through this? That's not Christ. I've never been one to have more than $1,000 in my checking account or savings account at any given point in my life. But i got a couple pieces of plastic that will get me upwards of $7,000 each. So I'm perfectly fine if the world comes crashing because I could just charge it. <laughs> to me, that's an Egypt. When Jesus was on the earth, he literally said, you want to follow me? Foxes have holes and dens. I don't have a place to lay my head. You want to trust me and follow me? Then you need to have the same attitude. Because if I say to you, you lose it all. Because it serves my purposes. Are you able to? Could you be homeless and trust him? I'm not speaking just to Elsie. I'm talking to all of us. If God were to say to you, 
Give away your brand new vehicle. Could you? Without question. If God were to say to you, I need you to give your home to that family. Trust me. Could you? Where's your Egypt? Does God truly have the sovereign place in your life? Are you 100% fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, following him without question? I'm not. (laughs) I'm doing the absolute best that I can to get as close to that ideal as I possibly can. But when, I, when, when the rubber hits the road, for me to actually raise my hand and say, yep, that's me, I can say that. <laughs> nope, because the anxiety wells up in me going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, how I, how, I got I, my wife and my daughter and grandson. What am I, you know? But do you really trust me? Or do you put your trust someplace else? Do you really trust me? So those are the words I think God wants us to hear this morning. You take them home, chew on them, spit out what doesn't apply, hold on to the rest of it and start making it part of who you are as a Christ Christ follower. And I'll do the same this week. promise you. It's something that God is challenging me with in my own world. How much do you really trust me? How much are you willing to let me call the shots? Because if you say you're entirely sanctified, that's what it means. I trust you as Lord. I trust you. I trust you. Let's pray.